0: Hello there. I'm Adam Field and welcome to Extra Grim, a special episode of the Grim Reading podcast in which we delve a little deeper into the murky, mysterious and downright confusing world of the Brothers Grimm. It's, it's not really that murky, but I thought that sounded quite Brothers Grimm like. But it is confusing. And over the next 20 minutes, my friend and co-host, Mr. Matthew Hughes, is going to take us through a bit of the history and evolution of the Brothers Grimm's publications. He's also gonna talk about the different translations of these delightful, or frightful, or frightfully delightful fairy tales, and how even a decision as simple as choosing which translation to read can prove to be as difficult as, well, choosing which simile to end the sentence with. And of course, I'm gonna listen and ask plenty of silly questions. So pop another log on the fire and put the guard up, especially if you're burning a hardwood. They tend to spit a lot and you don't want to ruin that new Afghan rug. And sit back, relax, and enjoy.
1: Adam. I need to have a little talk with you about the editions and translations of The Brothers Grimm. Okay. So as I mentioned in the first episode, while you were choosing the stories, the copy of The Brothers Grimm I've got doesn't even include half of the stories. So I thought uh, after we did the first episode, I'd just go out and pick up a copy of The Complete Tales in a bookshop. Easy peasy. Sure. And we're on our way. Yep. Since then, I've been on something of an odyssey. (laughs) Uh, And for people interested and for you, I thought maybe I could explain where we're at. Yeah, definitely. I'd like to know. Over the years, there have been a huge number of editions and translations and collections of these stories in English. And on my quest to get us a copy, I've ended up tumbling down a very deep rabbit hole. So in this little lecture, I'd like to explain the German publications of the Brothers Grimm, the English translations of the Brothers Grimm, the problems with said translations... And the choices that we've made for the series. Okay. I'll try and be as brief as possible. And your job is going to be to arrest my waffling. (laughs) uh, If you deem my waffling sufficiently criminal. Take him away. Okay. But first, before I do all that, we have to climb back out the rabbit hole. So I can briefly tell you what exactly this whole darn Brothers Grimm thing is. Are you ready? I'm ready. The stories in the Brothers Grimm aren't just simply tales invented by the brothers, as many people believe, including us, I think, before Mm -hmm. we started this. The tales are the result of a project to collect the oral folk storytelling tradition of Germany, which they believe was dying out. They being brothers Jacob, Jakob, and Wilhelm, Wilhelm Grimm, from Hanau, Westphalia, latterly of the state of Hesse in central west Germany. Central west, okay. I say Germany, Adam. Obviously, there wasn't yet. Any such thing as Germany right but the idea of these stories was to find the voice of the German speaking peoples the Volk and in some respects this project was even part of a journey to self-consciously unite the Germans into one nation we'll hopefully go into that another time okay I just wanted to give you a bit of background so these stories are a project by the Grimm's to go and collect the the oral folk storytelling t- tradition of Germany the German publications. Okay, so the first ever publication of the Brothers Grimm in the original German was in 1812 under the name Kinder und Hausmärchen. Or Hausmarken. Children's children household. <laughs> oh, go on. Oh, hello, Mr. GCSE German. Well,
0: Kinder is ch- children.
1: Very good. Kinder surprise.
0: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, don't cheapen my German knowledge. All right. No, but I'm just saying you could have got that from that. So
1: let's see yeah, the rest of it. Yeah, I could have done, und, but I didn't.
0: Und... And, house martin, marken, house martin, <laughs> the children and house martin, very good. <laughs> B minus. John. <laughs> G- C- house
1: housemaker. Children's and household tales. Right. So the first ever publication was in eighteen twelve. House tale, household tales. Children's and household tales. The first edition and the first volume printed in eighteen twelve contained eighty six stories. Right. A second volume followed in 1815. So then the second edition of two volumes was issued in 1819. And at this point, there were 170 stories. Wow. Third edition appeared in 1837. Fourth edition in 1840. Fifth edition, 1843. Sixth edition, 1850. And the final and definitive seventh edition in 1857. From the 86 stories in 1812, we land at over 211 by the seventh and final edition in 1857. That's a lot of stories. Not only were there many more stories, but all of these stories had been significantly chopped and changed, edited and revised by the brothers, particularly Wilhelm. Okay. So before we even get to the English editions, the German editions are already significantly different from each other. From version to version, from edition to edition, yeah. A good example of how they changed the stories is the first story in all the editions is always the Frog Prince. By the final 1857 edition, the opening line of the Frog Prince had become, in the olden days when wishing still worked, there lived a king whose daughters were all beautiful, but the youngest daughter was so beautiful that even the son was struck with wonder. Compare that to the first ever 1812 edition. The sun fancies a bit of a sun is all over that. The first edition, however, in 1812, so nearly 50 years previous, started with, there was once a king's daughter. (laughs) And in an early 1810 manuscript, it simply went, the king's daughter went out into the forest. (laughs) So you can see how much they changed, just the actual way the stories are written down but it wasn't just stylistic the changes so the later editions downplayed over cruelty they added christian themes some tales were even eliminated yeah uh, some were replaced with different versions of the story and in general they were stylized to fit the brothers political and social visions and purposes mm-hmm. a famous example of this and actually quite amazing if you think about the the, the way it's impacted the popular culture is that figure of the Wicked Stepmother. In the first ever edition of Hansel and Gretel, and I believe in Cinderella as well, the Wicked Stepmother was actually the Wicked Mother. Oh, wow. But because motherhood was
0: considered sacred, yeah. they, they changed it to a stepmother. Wow. Incredible, isn't that's, it? That's that's mad. And Cinderella, did you say Cinderella's a Brothers Grimm?
1: Well, title? it is included in the Brothers Grimm stories.
0: Interesting. Oh, right, right.
1: Yeah, yeah. We we will see, you will find it elsewhere. You'll find it, I think, particularly in France. I think there's uh, versions of it in Italy. So, as I mentioned, the Grimms were doing this partly as a self conscious way to unite the German peoples with the German stories. But unfortunately, borders aren't so fixed with people. So, yeah. these stories ebb and flow around not just Europe but the whole world yeah for example I said here that some stories are removed so in the first edition the story Puss in Boots was a mm-hmm. Brothers Grimm story but they actually removed it because I think of the, ver- the French version of the story they thought it was too French so they got rid oh, of really? it really I think so yeah
0: what a cat in boots is very <laughs> French so uh,
1: as they became more moralistic and increasingly aimed the stories at children they generally went the American route over the French I.e., they turned down the sex and cranked up the violence.
0: Nice. I don't want to go into too many examples of that. Lots of explosions. (laughs) Action heroes. (laughs) Very Hollywood. In a world. (laughs) English translations.
1: And those were just the German changes. There's a whole other ton of issues when they cross the sea and make their way to Britain. And it's important to note here that... In Germany, at this time, the Grimm's were part of the artistic and intellectual movement of romanticism.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Do you know much about romanticism?
0: No, but I'm thinking <laughs> Grimm's fairy tales aren't particularly romantic. Uh, well, yeah, not in, the, I suppose, the sense in we the, use it today. In the sense, yeah, yeah. But the romantic period, vaguely, yeah. Yeah, yeah we did it in knowledge. music
1: at school, that's for sure. Yeah. Uh, so romanticism, again, I'd really like to go into this more in the future. But put simply as I can and what i believe it to be mm-hmm. romanticism was a reaction to the enlightenment's elevation of reason and rationality so in in england think like uh, think poets like uh, william blake and keats so the, the you know the you know did the feet in ancient times walk on england's green and pleasant land jerusalem yeah there's an adulation of nature and the simple life it's a sort of reaction against factories and urbanization and the mechanization of our of our daily lives right okay so although the Grimms did make changes in German uh, in the face of moralistic criticism. They were largely shielded by these idealistic notions of romanticism. So that romanticized ideal of the humble German peasant, the, the innocence of nature. Mm. It's, to them, it's the civilized interpretation that's corrupt. It's the middle class is getting haughty. Yeah. They're at fault, not the stories themselves. Right, okay. So although they did make changes, they were tempered by this wave of romantic thought. Not quite so simple in England. So when the fairy tales came here, they were slotting into the existing framework of fairy tales we had here, which was seen as a low art form. They were vulgar and just for entertainment purposes. Vulgar fairy tale. Well, you yeah, know, it's vulgar. You know, off the people, not yes, artistically. Yes, right. Yeah. They don't have not a high talent, art exactly. Yeah. Whereas in Germany, the Grimms had elevated the the folk story to to a high art, something of intellectual import. Mm-hmm. Not quite the case in England. Right. So the translations also had to navigate the social, religious, gender, and moral playing field of England, which meant, uh, to the modern reader, meant some quite staggeringly petty changes. For example, they actually translate heap of dung, so like heap of manure, is translated to for the sensitive English audience to pile of hay or straw.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Wow. It's not even... It's not the same. I know. One of, the thi-
1: one of the things I find particularly fascinating with the English that comes up a lot is the fear of the supernatural, which is something we don't even, it wouldn't even bother us now. In fact, that's part of a fairy tale. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's an 1855 translation of Sleeping Beauty, which introduces markers to warn the audience that the line of reality and imagination is no. being crossed. It's considered dangerous
0: and almost ungodly, this sort of like move to the supernatural. That's amazing. So like... <laughs> Halfway through a story, up to which point it's followed the the laws of nature, it it then flags up, we're about to cross into the fantastical. You're about to come across an anthropomorphic sausage. Warning. Warning. Anthropomorphic sausages. All right, all right, all right, I'm ready, I'm ready. ready. Put the kids to bed.
1: So, in that way, the grim stories have often an animistic manifestation of nature. Mm -hmm. As in plants, animals, and humans, they all have intentions, they can talk. It doesn't merit comment, this. No. So as we saw in Old Sultan, the dog was talking with the master. It's not a problem. Yeah. It's fine. For the Grimms, this is part of that adulation of the natural order. And it shows how these tales are coming from the people. It shows how close they are to nature. As opposed to the upper learned classes who are afraid of this kind of thing. Yeah. This animism, though, didn't really wash in England, which still had a very human-centric, highly Christian worldview. Uh, Often we'll see in the English translations that nature is returned to a non-sentient state, So these simple fairy tales were potentially really controversial, ungodly even. Yeah. So incredibly, the first ever translator, Edgar Taylor, who we've used for the last three stories we've done. Okay. He wasn't published by name until after his death, seven years later. Why? You could, maybe your reputation would be sullied among the... In this deeply
0: conservative Christian sort of culture. And actually
1: most 19th century translations into English were anonymous. The majority of them were anonymous. And interestingly, a lot of them were by women, which I'd like to learn more about in the (laughs) future. We're getting into the final part So uh, The Grimms changed the stories themselves The translations changed the stories even further And amongst all this confusing chaos We've got to pick a translation and addition to use
0: Yes It's not a straightforward thing of picking up the Bumper Book of Grim Tales and (laughs) reading through it. No. It's very complicated. Maybe I'm being a little bit pernickety, but
1: I wanted to get to the bottom of this once I started. Yeah. So in these last three episodes, we've used Mr. Edgar Taylor. Mm -hmm. Edgar was a lawyer from Norfolk, uh, and most of his translations uh, were in collaboration with his friend David Jardine. These are the first translations into English. The first ever translation that we've been using as well, his first ever translation was in 1823, only 11 years after the first publication in Germany in 1812, Mm -hmm. as you all remember, I'm sure. Yeah, I do remember. Uh, However, Edgar's translation is from the second German edition of 1819. So already two editions had come out in Germany, and Edgar was translating the second one. And already, by the 1819 edition, the German stories themselves had begun to have their morally motivated changes put on them. So it was already very different from the first edition. Right. It's going through
0: two, more than one set of filters. Exactly. Yeah. Uh,
1: I really like the Edgar Taylor translation. We've had a lot of fun with it. Yeah, we certainly have. <laughs> but the, the biggest problem with his, his translation is he didn't do all of the stories. And right. And he was quite a prude, religious-wise. Right. Uh, so do you remember last time, uh, one of the stories we were considering was called The Giant with the Three Golden Hairs? Yes. He translated that from devil. It was devil with the
0: three golden hairs and now it's giant he changed it to giant (laughs) which is more acceptable than devil yeah (laughs) it's less uh (laughs) not the same thing though
1: no definitely not not the same thing (laughs) (laughs) in the slightest uh you know in a way they're not so precious with the stories which i quite like yeah Yeah, they're just they are they're being reflected by the context that they're being told in yeah so the second translation was in 1855 by Matilda Louisa Davis and then another one followed in 1868 by Mrs H.B. Paul. But they're very rare to find now. Next up we've got Margaret Hunt whose translation is from 1884. This is the definitive English version of the Brothers Grimm. If you buy a generic copy of the Brothers Grimm it's likely to be a Margaret Hunt translation.
0: In 84? 1884. And the last published Brothers Grimm one was in the 1850s, wasn't it? Let me have a look. I think it was eighteen. So they're presumably dead by this point. 1857. Yeah. Uh, so I assume they're dead by the time it gets to 1884. I think so, yeah. I think they are. Okay, interesting. I think around that time. So her translations were of their last ninth edition in Seventh 1857. Edition. Yeah. Seventh edition, sorry. I got, exactly. Jumped, added in God's sake, Adam. <laughs> yes, <sir. laughs> Got it wrong. <laughs>
1: There were a few other translations throughout the years, but those are the two, Margaret Hunt and Edgar Edgar Taylor, are the two big hitters from the 19th century. Yeah,
0: the popular ones.
1: Contemporary translation-wise, the big hitters are Ralph Mannheim in 1977 Mm -hmm. and Jack Zipes, I think, 2014. Oh, recent. Ralph Mannheim was an American translator of French and German and other languages. He translated Mein Kampf into English. Oh, wow. As well as Bertolt Brecht, Gunter Grass, Freud, Proust, 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 and uh, the philosopher Heidegger, and I think possibly Hegel. Jack Zipes is the only one of these chaps still around, and he's considered the man. Uh, He's the world leading authority on all things Grimm. Most interestingly of all, he translated for the first time in English the very first 1812 edition of the Brothers Grimm, Kinder und Hausmarken. So it's much more raw, it's stark, and the stories are quite significantly different from the ones in popular culture today. Yeah. Incredibly, it wasn't until the 21st century that the English-speaking world got a copy of the first ever Brothers Grimm. Amazing. Yeah. So after all that, let's recap. 19th century, we've got Edgar Taylor, Margaret Hunt. Yeah. Contemporary, we've got Ralph Mannheim and Jack Mm Zipes. So what are we going to do? Out of loyalty, I think we're going to stick with Mr. Edgar Taylor who Pick we've been trailer. enjoying so far, where we can. We're going to defer to Edgar. Where we can't, we're going to head to the definitive Margaret Hunt. Mm-hmm. It seems to me that these two are the definitive idea of what the words of the Brothers Grimm conjure up in the imagination. Okay, yeah. And they're the versions that first had the massive impact on british society and i wanted to keep it as close as possible to that initial grim wave but i've got uh copies of the modern translations we will be able to compare particularly with zipes
0: the first ever versions well, that's of these what i'm tales. interested in particularly mm. if they're a bit darker and a bit possibly a bit more twisted
1: After all that, though, does it even matter, Adam? I was beginning to tear my hair out. And I came across the obvious argument in the end that, obviously, there isn't a definitive version of the Brothers Grimm sure. stories. The beauty of these stories is their adaptability. That's the nature of folklore. Exactly. Yeah. That's why they survive. It's what makes them interesting. In fact, Jack Zipes and others have even encouraged people to rewrite the stories themselves. Philip Pullman has done that, the author of Northern Lights, yes, yeah. you know, his Dark Materials trilogy. And there's a lot of feminist retellings you get in uh, that period. Right. So we're not going to worry too much. We're just here to enjoy the folktales. But I Absolutely. wanted to explain how we're doing, why we're doing, what we're doing.
0: I am, well, I'm glad you did. I'm now a lot clearer. Are you? I hope so. I think. There will <laughs> be a test. Are we going to make clear, like which one we're using in each episode
1: you just assume that we're using one of the 19th century versions ed
0: taylor no what's it called edgar taylor edgar
1: or margaret hunt if there's something interesting about it i'll mention it to you afterwards yeah and and th- we won't have lectures like this every time no. heaven's
0: knows. <laughs> no. Uh, but no I, I think it's important to start off with, and sort of understand yeah yeah what what version we're using and and the sort of history a bit of the brother's screen because like you say when we started out with this project we didn't know that much yeah and uh, yeah it's important to know the context of where these stories come from so there's so much of... background to, to, to unpack and to go through so it'd be interesting to sprinkle that through the podcast alright well I'll see you
1: next time for Tom Thumb or maybe not Tom Thumb no.
0: oh I'm intrigued enigmatic well mm. stay What's, tuned. what could he be referring to And there you have it. I hope you enjoyed that special episode of Grim Reading. Uh, We'll be back to the regularly scheduled programme next week when we read and review Tom Thumb. Or is it Tom Thumb? (laughs) Oh, cliffhanger. Uh, If you want to get in touch, you can do so by emailing us at grimreadingpodcast at gmail.com. That's grimreadingpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, We're also on Twitter, at Grim Reading Pod, and also Instagram and Facebook, Grim Reading. We'll see you next week. Stay grim. Bye.